0: this is who we are welcome to the tabletop inventing podcast
1: how does an embryonic heart form how exactly does one set about 3d printing a fully human fully compatible heart valve and how does failure influence innovation is there more to a 3d printed heart valve than just the printing stay tuned for the answers in today's podcast Hey there, Innovation Nation. Today, we have an exciting interview with Jonathan Butcher, a research professor at Cornell University and one of his graduate students, Daniel Chung. But before we get started, I'd like to remind you to share our podcast with your friends and colleagues. We've been getting great reviews and we'd like to share these great interviews like today's show with more educational innovators. There are two ways to help other people find our podcast. The best way is just to invite a friend or colleague to listen with you or to send them to our podcast page at www.ttinvent.com/podcast or on iTunes and Stitcher search for Tabletop Inventing the second way to help others find our podcast is to subscribe listen and then leave us a rating and review in iTunes or Stitcher. Doing this will help us rise up in the rankings and other people will be able to find us more easily. Why all the fuss about spreading the word? World change. The ideas you hear on this podcast will literally change your world and your students' horizons. We discuss innovation, success, inventing, learning and other crucial life skills on today's show specifically, Jonathan and I discussed the role of failure in learning. We discussed the path to research success. Oh, and we jump head first into the topic of 3D printing heart valves. There was so much to cover that we just skipped the Inventor Secrets today in lieu of the great interview we had. This is some heady stuff. Put on your diving gear. We're going in deep. So I have two guests today. Dr. Jonathan Butcher and Daniel Chung both from Cornell University. Dr. Butcher is the Associate Professor and Associate Chair for Biomedical Engineering at Cornell University and Daniel Chung is a PhD student in Dr. Butcher's lab studying the development and application of 3D technologies to soft tissue structure and function specifically to heart valves. Dr. Butcher's lab combines engineering expertise with developmental biology perspectives to understand natural engineering. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Butcher, could you define a little bit more for us what you mean by natural engineering?
0: Sure. It's it's generally something that we experience uh, every time uh, any anyone uh, sees a baby being born, and that is over a nine month process. You have a a fully functioning organism that starts as a single cell and grows from that single cell into a complete living being and that engineering process because it really is it has engineering features in it throughout the gestation process and something that we have very little understanding about and uh, my lab seeks to understand what are those guiding principles those engineering principles that basically help shape, control, govern how these tissues are put together from cellular decisions all the way into functional results. And I try to use that information to help guide new engineering approaches to either restore lost function or to create completely new organs that will be able to replace diseased organs. So it's kind of an overarching process of, of uh, engineering defining actually living tissue remodeling. So
1: I first got introduced to your lab through uh, one of your, uh, was it former students? And mm-hmm. uh, she was talking about a 3D printed heart valve. And so with the natural engineering process you were just talking about, tell us a little bit about the development of, of an embryonic heart. Like how does it start? What does it look like? And how does it how does it become a heart
0: Uh, that's a great question so the the earliest heart that we have in an embryo is actually a linear tube and it kind of pulsates very chaotically and barely generates any kind of fluid motion at all over the course of actually a very short amount of time in the human uh, of just a few weeks and in animal models that we study for example a chick embryo it happens in just one week this organ will grow a hundredfold in volume. It will transition from a one-chamber kind of heart to a two-chamber kind of heart, and to a 4 chambered kind of heart, complete with parallel uh, functioning chambers and valves uh, in, in such a short amount of time. It's really, it's really quite uh, remarkable, and um, we are very interested in understanding how the mechanical forces that are present in this tissue the entire time while it's trying to grow and remodel uh, how those forces are participating in guiding the way that this tissue grows and remodels. So for our audience most of us
1: are not horribly familiar with something called stem cell differentiation Um, and I know it will probably come up so just to kind of set the groundwork here tell us a little bit about what stem cell
0: differentiation means. Many tissues in your body have a small number of cells that essentially reside in this tissue and have a capacity when called upon to first proliferate, which means to become more of, but then also differentiate, which means to change in kind, to the cell types that your body needs in that tissue to function. Uh, The easiest example that people are familiar with is the liver. So the liver contains robust population of of progenitors, which are these immature cells that have a capacity to proliferate and repopulate the lost function or lost tissue mass in the liver. So a surgeon can take out like a third of your liver and you'll be able to regenerate that lost liver. Other tissues have a very poor capacity of restoring lost function, even if they have a small population of these kinds of stem cells. For example, the heart and the brain have a particularly poor ability to heal, um, which is why we have significant problems with Alzheimer's and heart attacks.
1: Interesting. So the cell differentiation, I guess, we may, maybe could we think about this like a 3D printer filament, for instance? And it, So a stem cell is kind of like the filament, and once you squirt it through some sort of a system, out comes some sort of a 3D printed thing. It's very differentiated, and you it's much more difficult than to reuse that. And so stem, would you say that stem cells are sort of like that? You can sort of repurpose them into just about anything you need them to be?
0: So stem cells have the capacity to form multiple different cell types, and uh, certain tissues will be comprised of cell cells that can make, and other tissues may not be able to be completely repopulated with just a single stem cell source. So the, the, I would say it's not as simple as you say, but it is, uh, it is as you say. We utilize stem cells uh, in our 3D printing applications for the tissues that we're interested in, for example, heart valves. The cells that populate the heart valves, we have figured out strategies to differentiate stem cells to those particular behaviors. So it makes sense for us to be able to use a stem cell rather than bother to figure out how to get those mature cells from a patient because those mature cells are already in disease state. So it would be better to take a stem cell that we could get from, example, bone marrow or even fat tissue to then differentiate into the uh, behaviors that we need to have in our scaffold.
1: So I was hoping that we could come around to this uh, pretty quickly because you brought up something I wanted to ask you. So how much of this process that, you know, for the 3D printing a heart valve, for instance, is the 3D printing aspect and, you know, what is involved with that? And how much of it is stuff that you do afterwards, like you're talking about the cell differentiation and the, you know, uh, I think you, you mentioned a bioreactor.
0: Yeah, sure. Each of these process has its own devils in the details. I would say that. Part of understanding how the tissue that we print remodels feeds back into how we will, in fact, print that tissue the next time around. So there's a feedback loop that exists in, in this engineering process that iterates. So we learn about how to better print the tissue based on how the tissue remodels. For example, we might print a tissue, and then in culturing it over time, we see that the tissue shrinks in some areas and expands in others. Well, if we want to establish a particular final geometry, we may have to adjust how we print so that the tissue is smaller in some places and larger in others so that when it shrinks or you know, however it morphs, it ends up in the final position that we want. Mm-hmm. Likewise, the internal composition of the material, uh, we may want to fabricate a specific way so that the cells that we deposit in that environment receive the instructions that we want them to see so that they will become the tissue that we want it to be down the road when it comes time to say implant that into a patient. Um, There are a whole host of different strategies to, to make that particular process work. For example, there are some ways that we might be able to fabricate the scaffold with no cells in it, but the instructions are there so that when you implant it, your own body when it encounters that tissue actually populates that tissue for you that is a whole uh, there's a whole bunch of implications for that uh, process in terms of being able to be acceptable for the FDA etc. Conversely if we know we need to have cells to start the process there may be certain instructions that we need to make those cells become the behaviors that we want them to be but also to help those cells to not do the same kind of disease processes that the original cells had the susceptibility to. For example, in the heart valves that, that Dan prints, one of the capacities that these cells naturally possess is the capacity to calcify. That is the disease process that happens in these valves. Well, if we could create a strategy where we instruct stem cells to be, become the cells that we want them to be, but be resistant to becoming a, a cell that calcifies, we actually have achieved almost an advancement over what the natural biology is. I haven't said we've gotten there. I'm just saying that's an idea.
1: <laughs> that That is definitely a very high, uh, high aim, and I know lots of people would appreciate it if you could figure that out because heart disease is one of those things we fight with on a regular basis. So Dan and I were talking earlier, and I just wanted to ask maybe for you to elaborate just a little bit Um, in the process of cells going from being a stem cell to being uh, in your case a specific heart valve uh, cell or a cell that's differentiated properly for that there are several things that have to happen Uh, what kinds of things influence that differentiation
0: so we're learning every day another feature that can help guide that differentiation process. Many people who study cell differentiation view differentiation process as a a gene controlled process. So we have, uh, every cell has all the DNA that every other cell possesses. So each cell hypothetically has maybe some capacity to become any other cell in the body. And we've recently proven, not we, but science has proven this capacity by being able to activate certain genes that takes any cell and makes it almost identical to an embryonic stem cell which can then turn into any other cell again so a lot of scientists look for genes as a way of, of fingerprinting fingerprinting a what a cell is and then being able to try to turn on each of those genes to replicate theoretically a particular cell type they want our strategy is a little bit different so we don't view genes as the as the main drivers per se but we sort of see genes as tools and we think that the driver is actually the environment that the cell finds itself in so you could picture your cell as kind of sitting in a garage and the genes are all these tools in a toolbox and the cell actually has to do something the cell has to do something that its environment tells it it needs to do and the cell will reach into its toolbox and find the tools it needs, in this case, genes, that it needs to express or turn off, et cetera, to be able to perform that function. It actually has very broad implications in terms of the nature of disease processes and tissue development, which is why I'm so interested in in that kind of uh, complementary hypothesis that makes engineering a really exciting opportunity to, to learn more about this feature, Uh, In terms of applications though, it gives us an opportunity to define that environment that we put a stem cell into, so that a stem cell, when it sees this environment, decides it needs to perform a certain function, and it reaches into its bag of tools and starts performing that function. So if we make a room in one location in our tissue that says this cell needs to be a fibroblast, that stem cell will start acting like a fibroblast. If we make a different room in a different location that makes the cell think it wants to be a smooth muscle cell, that cell will just get to work becoming a smooth muscle cell. The converse strategy would mean we'd have to go and figure out how to turn on certain genes with a genetic approach in every little location in this tissue, and that would be just very difficult to achieve, especially when just turning on one or two genes is really challenging already.
1: That is an interesting hypothesis, and I just learned something that I totally didn't know. <laughs> I, I love it when I learn things in podcasts uh, speaking to my guests. So I, I guess I, I hadn't thought of it that way. H- how prevalent is that, uh, that hypothesis, the alternate hypothesis you're talking about? Is that you know, 5%, 10%, 50%? Uh, h- how, many, how many people in the field believe that idea?
0: Um, I would say it's definitely a minority view uh, because the field of genetics is huge right now uh, ever since the genetic revolution in the late 80s the ability to manipulate genomes uh, has created lots of opportunity for biologists now a lot of biologists seek to understand how something works but that's really where their knowledge ends because their ability to improve upon or restore is rather limited whereas engineers that's what we do all the time our problem is we don't really know what problems are worth solving and our challenge is to define the problem so that we can solve it so it's a really it's a view that actually gives engineers an advantage but it's also a challenge because there are so few engineering tools that can be applied at the particular scale of investigation that that we're we're looking at Um, whereas the genetic techniques you know there's a tremendous engine of researchers that are looking in this area i mean i think that there will be a lot of interest in looking at tissue formation tissue disease processes utilizing the strategy that that we think as as years go on just because of the not just the data that we're generating but the field is kind of recognizing very important roles that the environment of the cell finds itself in it's just a it's just a fact that there's very strong influencers i think that As we develop tools that are are able to alter the environment that cells are in and measure the differences these cells experience, we'll be able to build a robust set of information that will help educate other scientists in the, the potential power of this way of thinking, but also the reality of this way of thinking. So it's very much a hypothesis now that we're working on, and there are several other labs that are working in it, but it's very much a minority view at this point.
1: I would have to say I'm intrigued as a physicist myself who has worked with biologists and had lots of thoughts about this. I mean one of the things I remember thinking pretty early on working with uh, you know the physicians and uh, dentists that I work with and biologists that I work with at the university was that uh, in order to understand what was going on we really needed to go find ourselves a systems engineer who could tell us a little bit more about the feedback system we were seeing. Um, And it sounds like you're definitely looking at some of the feedback mechanisms for, you know, putting a a cell in a particular environment and, you know, what is the, you know, what is the natural response of the cell to come back and say, oh, in this environment, I become a, you know, a liver cell. In this environment, I become, you know, a heart valve cell or, you know, whatever happens to be the current thing that needs to be. And I I apologize for my lack of understanding of biology there. (laughs) No, it's, 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 it's no problem. So let me ask uh Daniel a specific question here how much of this work that you guys are doing uh is hands on and how much of it is um you know uh, other types of uh work in the, uh, in the lab
2: i would honestly say that everything is completely hands on from start to to end honestly i would work on for example like printing like the whole process of printing a cell i would have to grow the cells or I guess I should say, thaw the cells first if we buy it from, from a company. Thaw the cells, grow the cells, and make sure I, I make all the materials and then uh, put all these together into the printer and make sure that I have all the right composition, right percentages, and actually print it. And, and upon printing the valve, I would also have to not only make sure to uh, keep it alive for a few days, but also put it into the bioreactor that uh, Dr. Butcher alluded to earlier to make sure that it, it is conditioned. So yeah, the entire process, I would say it's completely hands-on.
1: That sounds like a lot of work uh, for something that uh, seems to happen very much uh, on its own that we don't have to mess with too much if it works right, I guess. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I I wanted to key into something that uh, Dr. Butcher brought up a minute ago, and this is a question for both of you. Would you consider yourself more of a biologist or more of an engineer, or do you really have to have a balance when thinking about uh, your current field?
0: You want to answer that first? Or you? Want to... Yeah,
2: so I came from an engineering background, and I, I, I think it's a balance of both. Without knowing, like, what, I, and Dr. Butcher uses <laughs> this analogy like, a lot of knobs to tweak, right? Uh, with, so without knowing that from an engineering perspective, I would say that we can't necessarily progress the project along. But at the same time, without knowing biology, like, we wouldn't know what knobs to turn or uh, how to correctly analyze some data.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I so I would agree with him. I used to think in my naive days as an early PhD student, I actually came into my PhD with no biology training. I was a straight mechanical engineer. So it was like taking my first ever biology class as a PhD student was quite an eye-opening experience. But I used to console myself thinking that biology was topical, meaning I could learn whatever I need to know about the heart and whatever is happening with the liver or kidneys or brain you know I don't have to I don't have to read those chapters Uh, and largely a lot of engineers uh, that are in this field that can be true but what I've come to appreciate um, over time is that a lot of biologists actually do a lot of engineering and what I mean by this is genetic engineering so they're thinking about the same ways to manipulate and control features of cellular behavior, but they're doing it almost exclusively at the genetic level. Uh, so the process that they learn how to manipulate genes and control genes is very much an engineering process. They just don't call it that, and they keep it into the, the very advanced levels of, of molecular biology but it is, in fact, engineering. So I've been able to appreciate that in my biology and uh, genetics colleagues. It's just that we look at it by engineering the environment, uh, which is, I would like to think, is, is highly complementary. And to do all of these things well, I think it's very important that you have a very good engineering training because you have to be able to be confident in your ability to innovate. What I mean by that is... The field is always going to change in such that whatever you invent or develop now, five years from now is going to be some kit that you can buy from some vendor very easily. So if you establish some new technology to study or to be able to explore a new area of science, you can't expect – it used to be this way, but you can't expect to just ride that technique for 30 years. And that's a good thing. Because science is always changing, that we're going to be able to learn new things, and that will open up even more questions. But if you don't have the background that enables you to keep innovating because you have those fundamentals, you're just going to hit a ceiling because you don't know, you know, you don't know how to solve this next problem because no one's ever solved it, and it's sort of right up against the limit of your ability. You know, that same thing applies to geneticists we didn't realize the power of actually modifying genes that don't code for any protein at all until very recently well the people who can do that now have an advantage over people who only know how to just buy the kits from 5 years ago you know so it's always going to cycle like that i think and so it's very important for people who do the kind of stuff that i do uh, and dan does to have an appreciation in both those skill sets now I agree readily that basically saying you need to be an expert in anything and I mean everything is not sustainable. So I'm not saying that that's actually the path. What I would say is the path is to be able to pick some skill set that you can be innovative in forever, perpetually innovative and confident in that ability so that you're willing to take risks because you'll you know you you believe that you'll be able to solve this problem or make this new technique. But you have to have enough in this complementary skill set to be able to dialogue with those other experts and translate your knowledge into them or to them, and, and to receive knowledge that they give so that you have collaboration space. I think that's becoming the model nowadays. It's just extremely important to collaborate and extremely important that each collaborator has a skill set that makes them contribute meaningfully into that synergy. So it sounds like if I can summarize that a little bit, that
1: you've got a primary strength in engineering, but you've, you're learning enough biology so that you can have a common language to solve really complicated problems while you are collaborate with people. But I wanted to key back into something you said, because um, you talked about this idea of having the strength of, I don't know, character or you know, wherewithal to innovate. Where, did, where do you think you first got that drive to try something new, to do something you've never done before, to try again after it didn't work quite right the first time? Where, where do you think
0: you got that? So, so I would say, and I tell my students this often, is that the only way you learn is through failure. What I mean by that is the person that flips on a switch and the machine whirs has no idea how that machine works. When the machine breaks and you look at this machine and you start observing characteristics about it and you find you know the hose that has a leak in it or the wire that's sprayed and you fix that wire and now it works you now know something about how that machine works and so the process of actually figuring out how a failed experiment failed and solving that is I think the essence of actually acquiring real knowledge and so one may even say that the expert in a particular field is the person who's made every possible mistake because that person knows every possible feature of that field now I don't encourage my students to make mistakes that we've already made you know that doesn't really help because there's an eternity of mistakes that other people have made that are not worth repeating but in exploring something new oftentimes you start off with experiments that give results that no one would ever have thought or no results because there's some characteristic of the experiment that that didn't work correctly. And it's really going through those trials that builds not only knowledge, but it also builds confidence that when you encounter a future problem, that you can overcome that problem. So really you start embracing failure for what it can teach rather than failure as a statement of personal value and i think that's actually hard for a lot of people especially people who might have you know grown up and done really well in high school and elementary school or whatever where it's just regurgitating knowledge because there you know the the wrong answer is the wrong answer and that's just that's just it but in science in in real science where there is no firm, dogmatic reality of, you know, the answer is five. The answer can be any number of things in any other, you know, in any number of circumstances. To be able to, to thrive in that environment, I think it really does require a certain amount of confidence that is born out of failure to build not only an understanding that failure can teach and therefore you feel like you're still accomplishing things when stuff doesn't work, you know, because you're learning, etc. But also, you have a healthy understanding of the the data that you do get, because, you know, you successfully determined that this relationship doesn't exist, or, you know, I think somebody told me, I don't know if I'm getting this correctly, but uh, when Alexander Graham Bell was inventing the telephone, I think that people were criticizing him for just working so hard on something that was you know, it was just not working. And I think he was, his response was, no, I've found 200 successful ways that this doesn't work. You know, so, like, a lot of times that's something that has to be, you know, that, that process, I think, could really set apart the expertise and, and the ability of, of scientists, you know, that are kind of, kind of being developed. I mean, not only in this country, but worldwide. It, it's very different than the way that you might be educated in a traditional system.
1: Now, I would have to agree with that. We are not very often told that failure is a good thing. We, we're usually told that failure is a bad thing. And getting that internal strength to go back against a failure almost is something we have to learn outside the system unless you're really fortunate to be in a place where a mentor can tell you that. And so without, you know, laying down on Freud's couch here, I mean, think back in mm-hmm. your mind, where do you think you first started getting a hold of that idea that failure was not necessarily a bad thing?
0: I mean, it would probably be when I was a lot younger. So any time where I was doing some sort of project that had an end goal in mind and I would have to figure out, you know, it might be kind of open-ended and I had to figure out uh, in order to achieve this goal, like I actually needed in my own mind to understand relationships between certain components that I would then use. So the examples that are coming into my head are, trying to get discs to read on my Commodore 64 computer. <laughs> uh, you know, they would just mysteriously stop working or, you know, start working and, like, how to, you know, just just sort of figuring out relationships and then using those. In fact, that's how uh, a lot of machine learning uh, actually, that's how a lot of it actually works. But other ideas are things that I was, you know, challenges I was given was, you know, people who have to make, strong bridges out of toothpicks you know that's a sort of a classic example now but when i was growing up that was like you know kind of first time they ever thought about that as an as an experiment but like you don't even know what shapes hold weight well and it's only until you do this a few times that you realize you can get away with shapes with very few toothpicks that actually support more weight than a pile of toothpicks you know but in the process of doing it a couple times, you actually convince yourself that you could probably build a pretty good bridge, uh, and so that extends into other things in a whole bunch of different areas. Um, but it's that first confidence, I think, that I can solve a problem, that helps you solving the next problem.
1: How about you, Dan? In this process of you know learning how to innovate, if you think back in your you know your experience, what kinds of stories come to mind? that you went through and learned that failure was a good thing
2: you know it's funny that dr Fisher brought up his uh, computer story because that's actually also the bridge uh story because those were probably the first two times in my childhood that i realized that you know failure is not necessarily a bad thing right so when i was a kid uh not, not what was it like a commodore 64 that you had no we had a like, fairly recent, you know, like Windows 98 PCs back in, what, like late 90s? I don't even remember. I was messing with the file system, and at some point, I deleted some stuff, and I wanted to play some games, and I just really couldn't figure it out until I, you know, messed around with it a little bit more and looked at the architecture of the computer and finally found out, like, what was missing or what, or what oh. I did wrong. But in addition to that... And, and, and gaming really filled my uh, passion for computers, by the way. I also built my own computer later, like in the early 2000s, I think. And I remember buying some parts that would not necessarily... I wouldn't say not fit with the computer, but it wouldn't work with the computer uh, correctly. And I had to do a lot of research and a lot of trial and error and kind of a lot of money too uh, to figure out, like, what was wrong. And it wasn't until I figured out, you know, like, all these failures that I realized that, oh, you know, some of these components don't work with this component that I bought. And with the bridge, actually, that was back in high school that I started doing that with my uh, CAD teacher. Uh, It was just like a very open-ended problem that I haven't had for a very long time in school. And that really, that open-endedness actually was uh, was shock in a way because I was just so used to, you know, getting a right answer or a wrong answer and regurgitating information and not necessarily applying uh, principles. So yeah, I mean, those were my like, my first two early instances of knowing when like failure is not necessarily a bad thing. And obviously, as I'm a PhD student now, like <laughs> there's a lot of
1: a lot of learning still to be done. Yeah, you don't make it through a PhD without quite a bit of failure. I definitely yeah. I definitely <laughs> feel your pain on that one. <laughs> well, I, I could probably spend all day talking to you guys because you definitely, we definitely speak the same language here. So, I want to get down to the last two questions we always like to ask, and I'm going to start out with this one. In, in the digital age that we live in, you know, where you can go to Google or Wikipedia or YouTube, and you can, I mean, you can learn all kinds of stuff uh, out there on the internet. What does it mean in that environment to be educated?
0: Who, who do you want to have answer that? Me or?
1: Oh, um, older generation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure, Dr. Butcher, go ahead.
0: Okay. So I actually sort of had to think about this a little bit in terms of thinking about educating our undergraduate students, because you're right, there is a lot of knowledge out there, and knowledge that's being constantly added to from a variety of different sources. There's almost like so many more knowledge creators or knowledge contributors than, you know, when I was growing up with just Encyclopedia Britannica and whatever it said. But I would say the skill sets that are so important that define being educated in this kind of society is the person that not only can acquire knowledge, but can vet knowledge uh, or critique knowledge, which what I mean is, so there's tons of information streams, but to be able to take information streams multiple ones and and compare them to each other and figure out what is you know what's what stands out above the rest what is what is actually correct versus what was somebody's opinion what is what is meaningful for this circumstance but maybe not this other circumstance the second feature that i think is essential is to be able to translate knowledge and what i mean by that is it's not just communicating meaning person x tells me in a certain line of information and I can say that same thing to somebody else but it's really that you can take information that you glean from one source and convert it into a language that's understandable to this next audience so that communication skill actually involves a significant amount of education because you have to know a lot about the source you got it from and the audience you want to give it to and then the third thing that I think is essential for anyone to be able to Classify themselves as educated is they have to be able to have the tools to create new knowledge So just having an ability to acquire knowledge doesn't make you as meaningful a participant or impactful participant in in this This society of educated people as you can if you can create knowledge and that takes many forms I mean that can be something you observe in your backyard to creating new satellites for a space travel but being able to utilize the same kind of tools, uh, I think, applies, you know, top to bottom. And I think those are, those are the three important skill sets that I think are critical. Go ahead. I oh, will no, just saying that
2: uh, I, I completely, full-heartedly agree with Dr. Butcher and all those eloquent responses. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I think my thought really here is to really emphasize on the application of the knowledge that you can get from, for example, like from of these sources – Uh, I think in a digital age, like, we have, like, information is everywhere. Uh, One, I guess, one one hard thing in that is you have to be able to filter out these information and see what is actually applicable. Uh, For example, like, whenever, like, I use Google a lot for a lot of my troubleshooting for computer problems, and half the time, you know, like, those responses don't necessarily work the way I want it to, and I know, like, instantly by reading it. But other times, like, I can just filter it out. And apply to what I need to do and then you know go through trial and error like what works and what doesn't but really like gaining knowledge and communicating is uh, a, a Huge aspect especially with you know with, with the internet, but really full applying it even to like like Like, said, like to your house your backyard uh, to anywhere is really the most meaningful
1: aspect of being educated well, Those are excellent answers so We'll just wrap it up with this final question, kind of maybe in a neat little package, you know, one or two sentences. What, is, what do you feel is the purpose of an
0: education? I, mean, I think generally the purpose of an education for society is to always increase the knowledge pool and always increase the pool of, of knowledge creators so that uh, society can be you know, continually improved upon. In in all of its different facets, Um, I think one thing that I don't want to see get neglected in this general idea, because even in the digital age, this is still very important. But for people to know themselves and to understand other people is also very important, because that's a critical piece about communication and also just interaction that's very important for a society. So I don't want that to be neglected in the concept of of an education.
2: Yeah, I agree that. So I think that the whole purpose of an education is really, if you boil it down, is to advance society and in, a, in a positive direction. Um, I guess that can be, you know, it's pretty broadly defined. And, you know, some people or other people can take a different, I guess, aspect at, you know, like what positive really means. But I think as long as you move forward, communicate knowledge and not uh, repeat uh, all the you know, past failures that we've done before. Is uh, really a good like, basic purpose of
1: education. Well, you guys have given some great answers, and like I said, I, I would love to continue to keep up a conversation with you here. So, as we wrap up, we like to give our audience the opportunity perhaps to reach out to you, uh, maybe ask a few further questions. What is the best way for them to interact with you?
0: Probably over email. I mean, I've gotten uh, requests by a number of people over the years, you know, for different what's your thought about this um, or whatever email is is the way to go yeah same things. alright
1: well thank you guys so much for taking a few minutes I'm gonna ask you guys to stay on for just a minute after we wrap it up but thank you guys for taking a few minutes to uh, talk to us this morning thank you my pleasure have you been enjoying the tabletop inventing podcast have comments or questions you'd like us to address contact us and we'll think through the comments and answer your questions here in the podcast. And be sure to let us know if you'd like a shout out or to remain anonymous. You can share your comments and questions at www.ttinvent.com slash podcast or by emailing us at podcast at ttinvent.com. Let's discuss your thoughts and questions. Join us again next time when we will again seek to answer the question, what is the purpose of an education? And as educators, How do we awaken the inventor in each of our students?